Would you like to learn how to get better results from your workouts? Of course you would, right? In fact, that's probably a big reason why you listen to this show. And I'll tell you something, even though I'm making great gains right now, I'm getting stronger every week, my body's changing every week, I'm still looking for better ways to do things all the time, more efficient ways of doing things, smarter ways of approaching my exercise programs and workouts. And that's why I've got my guest on today. His name is Chad Waterbury, and he's a guy who I've been learning from for at least 10 years, if not more. Not only does he have some serious street cred with having trained athletes like Ronda Rousey and being the director of the strength and conditioning program at Hickson Gracie's International Jiu-Jitsu Center in West Los Angeles, he is a guy who has strong academic credentials as well. He has a master's degree in physiology with a focus on neurophysiology of human movement. But now he's in the number one physical therapy program in the country, the United States that is, and getting his doctorate in physical therapy. So this is a guy who has a lot of experience and he has the foundational knowledge to understand how to approach training better. How can we get better results from what we do? And not only that, but how to stay healthy. And you're going to learn a lot of his principles and approaches in this interview. You're going to learn how to get results from just using body weight exercises. You're going to learn why you need to build strength and you'll also learn how to stay healthy. You may be able to build big, strong muscles, but unless you focus on joint health, you won't be able to maintain it. And you're going to learn how to do that with Chad today. So enough talk. Let's get to the interview with Chad Waterbury. Welcome back to another episode of the Legendary Life Podcast. Today, I have Chad Waterbury with us. And if you've been in the fitness business for a while, then you know who Chad Waterbury is. I've been following his work for, I don't know, at least a decade. But he's a guy, he's one of the go-to people, one of my go-to people when it comes to learning strength and conditioning and better techniques and methodologies for getting great results from exercise. And he has a ton of practical experience as well as he's got a master's degree in neurophysiology or physiology, but specializing in neurophysiology. And he also is in a doctor of physical therapy program. So he is a guy with a lot of practical experience and a lot of academic street cred as well. So Chad, thanks so much for being on the show today. I'm happy to be here, Ted. Awesome. And we're going to be diving into your new training methodology as well as uh, your new book, which I've been reading, The High Frequency Training too. It's really innovative, very cool stuff, especially if you're looking to get into shape without heavy deadlifts and using machines and using all the standard exercises that everybody does. But Chad, can you give, uh, you know, I've, I've given you a little bit of an intro. Can you briefly talk about what it is that you do? Well, these days, that's a pretty loaded question because I have some long days, but I, I have a training business. I work with athletes and non-athletes alike, and I'm also in school full-time in the doctor of physical therapy program at USC, and I'm working on a, a pretty big project, the biggest project in my career, which I can't speak too much about right now, but I'm very busy, that's for sure. But what I do is 
I try to build the precise balance between strength, explosiveness, mobility, and uh, muscle mass in athletes and non-athletes alike because to be the, the total package, so to speak, usually people are lacking in one of those areas or they're um, really struggling with one of those areas. Maybe it's hypertrophy, for instance. And the key to hypertrophy is to stimulate the muscle to grow more often. That's the key. That's the bottom line. And that's what high-frequency training is all about. And I started writing about that more than 10 years ago. And I've experimented with that so long, basically since 2001, and made a lot of mistakes along the way. But in high-frequency training, too, I mean, my latest training system, it's just basically a compilation of, of all the best methods that I've found and ways to simulate growth without absolutely you know, destroying your joints and wearing out your nervous system. And it took a while to figure it out. It took a lot of experimentation, but uh, I'm very happy with the results and the feedback that people have been giving me ever since it came out. And uh, it's a really unique system. Yeah, it's very cool. I've been through the whole book and very novel ideas on how to stimulate muscle and how to do it more frequently. And I told you, I'm doing a high-frequency training program as well. I'd love to get into some of the differences of maybe what I'm doing and you're doing. But before all that, man, I just want to ask you, because Ronda Rousey, I saw a picture of Ronda Rousey, and she had www.chadwaterberry.com on her shorts. So can you talk a little bit about that? Are you, are you training her? Are you doing her nutrition? I spent two years working with Rhonda and it was an amazing experience when she first started coming up and started fighting professionally. And she's one of those people that the first time I met her, I still tell her this first time I met her within like 15 seconds, I knew she was going to be a champion. I didn't know it was going to be, I mean, I didn't know she's going to be an international superstar. I mean, she, none of us knew that, but she is just, wow, she is a once-in-a-lifetime athlete, and you just realize it right away with her. So I worked with her for uh, two years, and it was a really great time I had with her and doing her nutrition and doing her weight cut and doing some other things with her, and it was great. But once I went back to school, so that was a really tough decision, you know, 39 years old to go back to school because I had to just basically put all my training and my, uh, my business on hold. So I don't work with her now, but I can't wait to see her fight tonight. And, uh, she's really something special. Wow. That's awesome to hear. And, and I'm not surprised hearing that when you talk about her because she just outclasses all her female competition. They really need to get someone in there. You don't know this, but I have a brown belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu used to teach it. And I've uh, been involved with that community for 12 years, and I'm kind of out of it right now to focus on what I'm doing business-wise. But uh, yeah, I've got a lot of respect for her, and she is just the, pff, wow, it'll be interesting. I hope that Chris Cyborg fight happens, because uh, I think tonight's going to be another 30-second armbar. You know what I mean? I don't know. I don't know. That's It's going to be interesting to see, because... And uh, Rhonda is such a competitor, and she's always trying to grow and build her skills and uh, really, you know, like improve her stand up. And she's just been incredible what she's done with her stand up game because we all know what she can do when she gets someone down on the ground, is it's over. So I don't know. It's going to be interesting to see if she wants to stand with her, if Rhonda wants to stand with her in exchange because, you know, her opponent has got quite a background, you know, in boxing. So it'll be interesting to see. Are you an MMA fan? 
Oh, huge. Oh, huge wow. Impact. Cool, man. Awesome. I did not know that. Are you training MMA or Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu or... No, I'm not doing anything right now. I Just can barely study, find, dude. Huh? I can barely find time to sleep. I mean, it's 50 hours a week at USC. Wow. And then uh, trying to fit in just a few clients here and there and then working on my other stuff. So, um, But I've spent, gosh, almost 20 years of my life in various forms of martial arts and studying with jiu-jitsu with the best guys. I call it Gracie, my buddy. He's, you know, he... Sure given me I, I trained with him for years and i actually trained him for his fight against sakuraba so i was a strength oh, conditioning. oh wow yeah. so yeah. that was really cool and he's pride, uh, pride fc days yes 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 so that was that was really a cool experience and you know what the whole gracie name and brand is jiu-jitsu and they're really just top-notch family and organization and they're terrific teachers and very powerful people you know just psychologically, physically. It's a great family to call as friends. Wow. Very cool. Very cool. And, and you worked with Hickson as well? Yeah. So Hickson's school before it closed, I was the director of their strength conditioning for that. And then, you know, then Crone went off and now he's doing great with his own school and such. And, you know, these days, as I said, I just have so little time for for that whole world, you know, and when I graduate in a year and a half, I'll get back to all that. But for now, it's all that stuff's on hold. But yeah, lots of experience in that world. That's very cool, man. And yeah, I know I'm, I'm kind of uh, selfishly asking you questions that maybe I talk about martial arts on here and I've had people discuss martial arts as, and, and some martial arts instructors and firearms guys. But yeah, I was just really curious because when I read that about Rhonda and Hicks and I, I just had to know more, Chad. But listen, man, I, I want to back up a little bit. Can we go into your story? How did you get started in the fitness industry in the first place? Let's go through that a bit if you're cool. And then I'd love to get into the style of training that you're doing. Well, I started off, gosh, at like 12 or 13 years old lifting weights. And I was skinny and weak and lived in this small town of 500 people. We didn't have any gym nearby. And I just had to do this all this makeshift training equipment. And I do pull-ups from the rafters of the garage. And I would, uh, I had like this big, um, like five gallon bucket I'd fill with rocks and I would do like press downs and straight arm lat pull downs and all this stuff. I was reading the muscle magazines and doing all that stuff. And I just, I really got the bug for just building physical prowess because, you know, I was skinny and weak. So, but it's, it just became a, a passion of mine. And then when I graduated high school, I got a degree in exercise science. And uh, my sophomore year, one of my professors who taught a local YMCA weightlifting class wanted me to take it over. He thought that I'd be a good instructor and I didn't have hardly any training experience except with my, myself. And he thought I could do it. So actually my first realm in the training was these, these 11 people in this uh, local YMCA weight training class, just you know your average middle-aged people. And started there and then it is all grew from there and I graduated with exercise science degree and then went to Chicago and worked on some under some very you know cool people um, got to be around guys like Tim Grover who was Michael Jordan's trainer and observe him and then I uh, they made me um, head trainer at this facility in Chicago that was like a hardcore training facility and after a year of that it was great got tons of experience I thought I wanted to go to medical school so I went back and got a pre-med degree, and then moved to Tucson, 
because I thought, well, I'm tired of the cold weather. I can't stand cold weather. And I grew up in Illinois with terrible winters. So I'm like, I'm just going to go someplace where it's warm. So I just packed up my car, you know, not a dollar to my name and just drove to Tucson. They had a medical school there. Nice. The University of Arizona. And just started, you know, training clients, just word of mouth spread quickly. And I started a little side training business. And, and I realized as I was researching into it that medical school just wasn't my thing. It just didn't interest me when I looked at the curriculum, the things I wanted to learn. I didn't want to spend all my time learning about medications. So that's when this kind of ancillary things were happening in my life where I was studying a lot of neuroscience and just became intrigued by it. So they have uh, at the University of Arizona, a terrific grad school in physiology and a lot of uh, emphasis on neurophysiology. So I started that program and uh, finished it and then started writing and giving uh, presentations and speaking at fitness seminars and such. And then I was like, okay, Illinois is too cold and Tucson is way too hot. So (laughs) I came to LA, came to Santa Monica, fell in love with it fell in love with the climate and it's like, okay, this is where I want to be. It's just like Goldilocks porridge, you know, it's like yeah. one was too cold, one was too hot and this is just right. And it's been terrific since I moved here. And uh, coincidentally, my longtime buddies and mentors in this, in this world, Pavel Satsaline, um, he and I actually live in the same complex here in Santa Monica. So it was this crazy coincidence when we ran into each other one day we hadn't seen each other in years. So it's a great place to be. Yeah, man, that's pretty amazing. And I was just in Phoenix. I had never been out there. I've been to California a few times, but uh, I thought it was a really cool place, the desert. And I could see how it gets hot. We were there. It was pretty cool weather. But man, it's a fascinating story, especially with regards to the neurophysiology, because I've had a couple of neuroscientists on the show, and I really feel like neuroscience, neurophysiology, this idea of the brain is something that's missing from the fitness world. Everybody's talking about the three mechanisms of hypertrophy and all this other talk that we hear. It's basically about building muscle, stimulating muscle. And I want to get into this neurophysiology thing more, but let's hear this story because you are doing a very different style of training now because you used to talk about deadlifts, squats, and basically all the things that your average like meathead guy does coming up and then you've made this transition to this new style of training. Can you talk about a little bit of what you were doing before and why you transitioned to this new style of training that you do? Well, let me just say that heavy compound lifts, deadlifts, overhead presses, heavy rows, those are foundational movements. I certainly haven't gotten away from those. I mean, that's a key to building your foundation of strength and uh, getting your joints and ligaments stronger and the connective tissue. And it's a really important aspect of explosiveness because if you don't have that base of strength, it's going to be very tough to build the, the muscle and the speed and the reaction times that you're looking for. What I've changed though is the frequency of that heavy lifting. I do it much more infrequently now and make up the frequency difference with exercises that are less taxing to your joints and your spine and such. Because look, when it comes to motor unit recruitment, there are basically three different ways to get maximum motor unit recruitment. One is you can lift a one to three rep max. So if you just do that, you're always going to get maximum motor unit recruitment, but you just can't do that. You can't do that all the time. You'll 
totally wear out your body, you wear out your joints, you'll be a mess. So then the question becomes, okay, how far can we peel that back? How low can the load be? How low can the volume be and still get maximum motor unit recruitment and stimulate the muscle growth process? So that's what I've been experimenting with because if there's one basically irrefutable truth, it doesn't matter what camp you're in if you're trying to build muscle. If you're in the one set to failure or your Bulgarian system, multiple training sessions per day or whatever it is, I think we can all agree on this. More workouts will lead to more growth because when you look at someone who or when someone says, all right, well, how much muscle can I gain in a year? You know, whatever that number is, basically what you're looking at is how many workouts can you fit into a year's time and then how much growth you're going to get for each workout. So if you can find a way to get more workouts in without overwhelming recovery and beating up your joints, then it just makes sense that you'll get more hypertrophy. But obviously, there's a lot of variables, a lot of moving parts you have to deal with. Well, how much is enough to stimulate growth and you know, how little rest can you have and, and still recover? And all those factors, you know, took me over 10 years of constant experimentation with people at all levels to figure out. But back to your question, once you've established that base of strength, you know, it's not tough to maintain it. It's not tough to maintain it with heavy lifts because none of us want to get weaker. But then you can build muscle and athleticism with a lot of body weight moves, moves that target the muscle more than the joint. That's the bottom line of HFT. How do you overload the muscle without destroying the joints? For instance, skull crushers, so lying, you know, tricep extension, skull crushers, whatever sure. you want to call them. It's great for triceps development, but you certainly can't do that six times a week. I mean, you'll just destroy your elbows. I can't do them at all, Chad. <laughs> My elbows yeah, do so, not like them. Yeah, Too many so, arm bars. Yeah. Yep. Yep. It's right. And a lot of people are in that situation. A lot of people over 30 years old who've been, you know, training since they were 19 or 20 and so I have to figure out ways to, for instance, stimulate the triceps without beating up the elbows. And the other thing is a key with high-frequency training or any training in general is to be consistent. And let's say, you know, I never use the leg press, but let's just say I wanted to do a high-frequency program for a guy to build up his quads and his thighs, and I used the incline leg press and said, okay, you have to do six sessions per week. Well, that's going to be tough for a lot of people because who wants to go to the gym six times per week if it's 30 miles away and who wants to just go through all that trouble? So then it's about, okay, what can people do at home without any crazy extra equipment? So that was the other challenge that I faced, figuring out the ways to use your own body weight to get maximum motor unit recruitment and using the the least amount of equipment possible. And that's really what HFT2 is based on. Let, let me All interject there for a second, Chad, because you've talked about maximum motor unit recruitment a couple times. And while this is a very educated audience, some people may know why you keep mentioning that and what its relevance is. But can for the people who don't, can you just talk a little bit about, just briefly describe what that is and why it's important? Sure. So let's just take the biceps, for example. Each muscle is made up of just, it depends on the muscle, but we'll say hundreds of thousands of muscle fibers. And those muscle fibers are in bundles. So the bundle of muscle fibers, let's say you have a muscle that has 10,000 muscle fibers in it. Then you might have bundles of muscle fibers that vary from 
30 muscle fibers to 500 muscle fibers. And each one of those bundles is innervated by one nerve. That's called a motor neuron. So when the brain tells that motor neuron to fire, then all the muscle fibers it's connected to will contract. And in the biceps, it's estimated that we have about 1,000 motor units. So that doesn't mean we have 1,000 muscle fibers. I mean, we have, who knows? I mean, it depends on the person, but you could have maybe, you know, 50,000 muscle fibers or who, who knows. But the point is, is that those nerves that innervate all those muscle fiber bundles have different sizes. And the smallest nerves are activated first, and they're connected to the smallest muscle fibers. Because in all those muscle fibers in your biceps, you have a range from very small to very large. So the definition of a motor unit is the nerve and all the muscle fibers it innervates. But just for simplicity of this discussion, I'll just use the term muscle fiber recruitment instead of motor unit recruitment. So if you have 50,000 muscle fibers in a muscle, then in order to get the best strength and size gains, you want to stimulate or recruit all those muscle fibers. I think that makes sense, right? Sure. The problem is, is a lot of the kind of dogmatic old school bodybuilding techniques don't recruit all of those muscle fibers. And the ones that they're not recruiting are actually the biggest, strongest ones. So here's a perfect example, keeping the biceps in mind because it's easy to visualize. The guy is doing a standing biceps curl with dumbbells and he does 12 reps to failure. He'll, you know, grab a load that's whatever suits him, you know, 35, 40 pound dumbbells, whatever it is, start doing curls and then around rep 9, 10, they'll start to get really hard. Rep 11 is super hard and rep 12, he's just grinding it out and, you know, working to failure. That's the old school bodybuilding mentality and, and the thought process was that you have to do those last two really hard reps and that's when you recruit extra muscle fibers, you know, those ones that were lying dormant or whatever. That's where you get your gains. Right. But in reality, that's not how it works. If you look at uh, neuroscience and neurophysiology, muscle fiber recruitment is orderly. The smallest ones always get recruited first and then larger, stronger muscle fibers get recruited as higher force levels are required. So at the end of a set, when it starts getting really difficult, what's actually happening are your muscle fibers, the largest, strongest ones that are working in that set are actually fatiguing and dropping out because your largest, strongest fibers can only sustain their activity for 10 seconds or less. Right. So the set gets harder because people have to now lift that load with fewer muscle fibers. And that goes against motor maximum motor unit recruitment because what you want to do is you want to start and end the set with as many muscle fibers as possible. So that's what I talked about and Charles Daly had talked about even before I did about three sets of 10, sure. switching it to 10 sets of three. Because in both cases, you get 30 total reps for that muscle group. But by having 10 sets of three, each set is shorter. And that does two things. That provides two benefits for muscle growth and strength gains. One is you can use a heavier load and two, the set is shorter, so you don't have to go past that 10-second mark where muscle fibers start dropping out because the ATP PC system can only sustain energy demands for 10 seconds or less. So that's a key component of my, my training philosophy for maximum motor unit recruitment. 
Yeah, no, very cool. And uh, I'll tell you what, I don't know if you're familiar with Fred Hahn, but he would be very upset hearing this news, Chad. Do you know who oh, yeah. I'm talking about? Uh, no, I don't. Well, he's a HIT guy. I, I probably should just unfriend him on Facebook, but I don't know. I just haven't yet. He's a personal <laughs> trainer, advocates uh, slow. I think it's super slow training or HIT, something like that. But he was, when I said I was doing a, an episode on how to build muscle, fast, safe, effectively, etc. I asked people for questions and he was trying to bait me into something. And someone asked a question, then he put a link, a Wikipedia link to Heinemann's uh, size principle. I'm like, why don't you just come out and say it, man? But basically what he believes is, uh, and it's not that, you know, we care that much about what Fred believes, but he was just basically saying you need to work until failure. But what you're saying is, you know what, Focus on the tension, the amount of load you're using. Keep the volume the same. I love how you put that. Instead of doing three sets of 10, do 10 sets of three. Up the load and max out those bigger motor units and don't exhaust yourself. Don't go into that glycolytic phase, keeping that the ATP PC system. Yeah, you know what's interesting about that is you do not get the same pump that a lot of people look for. Can you explain to someone listening right now who just loves to just trash their muscles? I mean, I know you kind of have already, but someone who just likes to rep out and trash their muscles, and maybe they're wondering why it's not working as effectively. Can you just summarize what you just said and tackle that that one question, why they should lift a bit heavier, even though they don't feel the same metabolic stress on the muscle? It's a great question. And it really depends. There is a time and a place for that. Let me just do one aside though really quickly. Actually, Henneman's size principle is what I base my foundation of training on. So it's interesting you mentioned that because what Henneman's size principle states is what I said earlier where motor units are recruited or muscle fibers are recruited from smallest to largest. So if you're recruiting the largest muscle fibers, you're recruiting all the other ones. You can't skip it. That's what Henneman's size principle actually helps explain. Yeah, he misinterpreted it. Big, he, right, he doesn't right. understand so, what he's talking about. Yeah. Well, there's a time and a place for slow training. And me being in the physical therapy world, doing this doctor physical therapy program, I, I certainly am not going to put down slow movements because there's a time and a place for it. It's called rehab. It's called motor learning. And you know you have to learn the movement before you start moving fast. But back to your question, I get asked similar questions like that a lot. So someone wants to do high rep training. They want to get the pump. They want to you know, take their training to failure. They want to work at a high intensity. And that style of training will always be popular. It'll always be popular because it makes you very sore. And people equate soreness with, with results and soreness with growth. Because what's happening is, as I mentioned, towards the end of the set, when it starts getting hard, it starts getting hard because fewer muscle fibers are working. An example I like to give is, imagine you're SUV, imagine you're driving through Montana in the winter and your SUV slides off and gets stuck in the ditch and you know there's no one around. It just so happens that 10 football players come driving by in a bus and they see that your SUV is in the ditch. So you have a big rope, so you tie it to your bumper and these 10 football players start applying this force to pull your SUV out. And the SUV is you know, moving out, it's moving out. Well, 
Imagine if five of those football players, for whatever reason, maybe you're a Jets fan and you're wearing a Jets t-shirt and, you know, five of the football players can't stand the Jets. So they decide they're going to stop pulling and go back to the truck. So now these five guys, instead of 10, are trying to pull your SUV out. So they have to work much, much harder. And their chance of, you know, pulling something or straining something is going to be much greater. But the bottom line is at the end of the set, when you're working to failure, fewer muscle fibers are working to move the load. And those fewer muscle fibers are your smaller muscle fibers that don't have as much strength and growth potential. And what you're doing is you're overworking those. And those are the ones that are getting sore. Your biggest, strongest ones that you actually want to develop aren't getting sore at the end of the set because they've already dropped out because they can only hang around for like 10 seconds if they're recruited at all. And that's a whole nother issue. But what I always say to people is if you're doing high rep to failure and you're getting results, then keep doing it. But if you're not, then here's an alternative method. And that's when I explain muscle fiber recruitment and doing shorter sets and doing more sets to make up for the volume. But the pump is not, there's no scientific evidence that shows a pump is equated with growth. But even if it were, then you just have to look at back to the muscle fiber recruitment and think that, okay, if I'm doing a high rep set to failure, what are the muscle fibers that I'm really overloading, that I'm really challenging, that I'm really breaking down? And they are never going to be the biggest, strongest ones. So from my standpoint, I want to hit those biggest, strongest ones in every set. However, high rep training where you grind it out works really well for certain muscle groups. It works really well for the deltoids. It works really well for the quads. I mean, you look at the athletes that have the most impressive quad development and you look at cyclists, you look at speed skaters, you look at downhill skiers. So there is a time and a place for longer sets and higher reps. And that's why in HFT2, it's, it's a mix of, of different types of training parameters. But for the most part, I think that there's a smarter way to do those long sets, those long duration sets. And that's when I bring in isometric holds and combining them with reps and this countdown method and all this other stuff I talk about in the system. Yeah. And what I think you just epitomized by that discussion or that basically like a small lecture you just gave is that work smarter, not harder. And even though if you're a guy and you're going into the gym and you're working hard and like Chad said, it, it stopped working for you, then it's time to do things a little bit smarter. And that's why I have guys like Chad on the show to help you do that because, you know, at the end of the day, you should be getting results. And if you're not, it's not your genetics. You probably haven't hit that genetic ceiling that you have. It's not that you need more supplements or steroids. It's that you simply need to change your training. And Chad, I'd love to get into some of the principles of the HFT too. You talk one about observational science. You got a, a part in there about observational science. And I think it's so important that we Listen to the people like Brad Schoenfeld and Brett Contreras and all the great guys who are putting out solid evidence-based recommendations for training. But also, don't forget that gymnasts are jacked, right? And speed skaters have built quads, and they're not following these types of standard recommendations with linear periodization, skiing, all this stuff that we talk about in fitness. Can you talk a little bit about observational science and, and just that story behind uh, why you wrote that part in the book? 
Yeah, and I just want to give a shout out to Brett and Brad because those guys are really, they're two buddies of mine and we all spoken at the NSCA over the years and they're just really at the top of their game and they bring, you know, so much to this industry and uh, we actually, the three of us actually did an article um, earlier this year together which was which was pretty cool in one of the magazines on um, for men's health. But anyway, yeah, they're really great guys and I, I recommend that all the listeners out there look into Brad and Brett and and follow them because they have really um, excellent information. Yeah, Brad's been on um, the show. I have yet to get Brett on here, but uh, Brad's yeah. been on. He's helped school some people in in hypertrophy, better training methods. So yeah, yeah, we always have interesting discussions when the three of us are together because we have differences in the way we approach things, but it's all about results in the end because. I will never put down any training system, any philosophy, any person who's out there touting some training style. If it's giving the person results, if if the person's getting results, then great. But if not, then try some of this other stuff that we're talking about. But in terms of the observational science, probably the most important and beneficial piece of advice that I ever heard was from one of my professors when I was doing my neurophysiology studies at the University of Arizona. And he said, one day in class, he said that science is the act of observing the world around you. And I just thought it was such a profound statement, really, when I started thinking about it. Because we think of science as like in the lab and muscle biopsies and things like that. But this happened to be around the time where I started experimenting with high-frequency training after going to the Cirque du Soleil show and seeing the Alexis brothers and thinking about how many shows they do per week and how was that even possible because it defied the laws of basic what we read in the strength conditioning texts about recovery and things like that. So I paired that with that statement my professor made about, again, science is the act of observing the world around you. And I thought, okay, so instead of taking 20 clients and giving them 20 different training protocols and trying to analyze their results with hypertrophy and seeing which one's best, it takes too long. It's too much work. Maybe I was just lazy about it. I'm like, I want a quicker way to figure this out. So I thought, well, what makes perfect sense? What makes sense to me is I'm going to look at athletes. I'm going to look at athletes that have proportionally large development in a muscle group. And I want to figure out what they're doing that the rest of us aren't doing. So my example, as I gave earlier, of the quads. Who has huge quads? Cyclists, speed skaters, downhill skiers. I think if you ask any of those people why they got in that sport, none of them would say, oh, I want to do this because I wanted huge quads. So these are people who are getting incredible muscle development, and that's not even their goal. So you can imagine that that's some very powerful evidence for what they're doing. Um, you look at gymnasts who perform the rings, and they have pound for pound the best biceps development of any athlete on the planet. I mean, we all see it, and I don't think any of them just did that to get big biceps. So another example would be calves. And it's like you look at soccer players and calf development and you look at cyclists and calf development and, you know, because that's a notoriously tough muscle group to build. Another set of athletes that you have to consider are ballet dancers. And you look at their calf development and you think that, you know, ballet is you know, let's be honest, it's associated with very poor nutritional strategies. I mean, these people are like, especially the females are like... That's a nice way of putting it, yeah. Yeah, malnourished at best, and that's the, the kindest way I can say it. And yet they have great calf development in the face of no adequate nutrition, no protein powders, no supplements, all that. So the one 
overriding theme with all those athletes was frequency. One thing that they were doing that the rest of us weren't doing is they were training those muscle groups or they were stimulating those muscle groups more often than we were doing because we were doing body part splits. You know, we'd hit a muscle group once or twice a week or we were doing even, you know, full body training, which is good. But if you just did two full body workouts a week or even three, it didn't compare with their daily training. So what I wanted to do is figure out how people could do short, efficient, effective mini workouts. It's even hard to call them a workout where they'll spend maybe five minutes per day doing something to help their calves grow. And it's something they don't have to go to the gym for. It's something that doesn't wear out their central nervous system. But it's just finding ways to train more frequently because that was the the overriding factor of, of all this when I did this these observations. And then it gets more interesting and complex when you think about, okay, guys that have big biceps, the rings gymnasts, the way they're stimulating those muscles, it's vastly different than what a cyclist does. So then I came to the conclusion, after lots of experimentation as well, that the biceps are not going to respond well to high reps. If you do 50 rep sets of bicep curls, you are not going to get any real gains, that's for sure. But if you do 50 rep sets of a quad exercise, you're going to get some really impressive gains in quad development. Granted, it's not going to do a lot for your max strength, but you're going to get the development. So then it was a matter of figuring out not only how to train a muscle more frequently, but unique approaches to each muscle group. So in HFT2, there's just not one set system that I use for each muscle group. It differs depending on, you know, whether it's the biceps, whether it's the quads, whether it's the calves, and all that came from that observational science. Can you uh, talk just a little bit for anyone who's wondering why would your legs grow from high reps, but not your biceps? I don't know if anyone has an absolute concrete answer. It probably has to do with the evolution of the human body and that the legs have more endurance capabilities and somehow respond better to high endurance protocols because of that, whereas the biceps don't. But, you know, that's a great question. So it's question. not and fiber type makeup. It's no, way more complicated than that. No, it is. That's the easy way out. Because, Interesting. you know, when you just say, oh, it's a, it's a fiber type makeup, it really isn't. Because the perfect example is the calves. The calves represent a muscle group that's predominantly endurance fibers. So the smaller, weaker endurance fibers. So it makes sense that, oh, you're going to do 50 rep sets for the calves. However, in practice, it just doesn't pan out. I mean, bodybuilders have been doing that forever and it, it rarely works. And, you know, many top bodybuilders still struggle with their calf development. And they'll do, you know, they'll do heavy training for their calves. They'll do high rep training and nothing really works. So then you have to look at the people who got great calves and you can look at ballet dancers or you can look at soccer players or you look at sand volleyball players. There's another example, people with great calves. And the calves, what I like to call, are what I like to call a very intelligent muscle group, meaning you can't just give them some uh, fixed standing calf raise you know, on a machine and have them grow. They really have to be neurologically challenged. Because the people that have great calf development are constantly trying to balance their body weight or they're working on unstable surfaces such as sand volleyball players or with soccer players, they're constantly changing directions. So think about 
like a soccer player out on the field and how many times he has to sprint, stop, shift directions, go backwards, go laterally, and how challenging that is to the Cavs. And what that does, in essence, what I think it's doing is it's just recruiting more muscle fibers and it's challenging them in a way that requires more stabilizer muscles to come into play. And that helps the overall calf development. Interesting. Yeah, very cool. So let's talk about the three-way attack that you use in your program, the HFT2 program, because you do something really interesting. You have these three techniques that you use, and I would love for you to describe what it is and also give the guys listening something that they can try right now with the the push-up one, right? Because every guy loves to work their chest, right? I don't think the calf raise as much as uh, we just talked about it would be quite as interesting to the people listening. But can you talk about the three-way attack that your three methods that you use and also give the example of the push-up and something that the guys could try right now? Okay. But I want to do something. I want to tell the, the listeners something about the calves because even if they're not looking for bigger calves, they can appreciate this. If you look at ballet dancers and their incredible calf development, if you just stand up right now, stand on one leg, you got to take your shoes off. I'm sorry. So your socks are I'm doing are on. this right now, Chad. Okay. All right. So you stand up, you stand on one leg. Let's say you stay on your left leg. Now, slowly raise up without any support from the wall or whatever. Try to do a single leg standing calf raise. Get to end range all the way up, the terminal extension point of the calf. So your highest point, try to hold that top position for even two or three seconds. And you'll see how challenging that is and kind of how dumb we've made our calves because they can't stabilize that movement. They can't get to that peak level of contraction. And that's just a simple drill you can do anywhere. You can even do it with shoes on. You're pumping your gas at the station, whatever. You stand on one foot and you try to get to that peak contraction like ballet dancers have to hold. And that is incredible for calf development. But back to the push-up example for chest growth. Push-ups can be one of the best chest builders or they can do virtually nothing. It depends on how you do them. The key with push-ups is that most strong guys – aren't challenged enough with their body weight because when you get into a regular push-up, you're about 55 to 60% of your body weight, which usually isn't enough load to really stimulate your largest muscle fibers. So this is when I bring isometric contractions into play because what EMG research has shown in my own research is that isometric contractions will recruit your largest, strongest muscle fibers. So if you try to Let's say you're doing a, a standing biceps curl, again, because it's easy to visualize, and you're using a barbell, and you're doing a rep. At the halfway point of you trying to curl it, I put my hands on the bar so you couldn't curl it, so it couldn't move, but you had to apply maximum you know, effort to try to get the bar to move, so it was just fixed, but I'm holding you back. That would recruit all of your muscle fibers, because isometric contractions result in peak levels of force or tension. So what you want to do with a push-up then is at the start of the set, you're in the top position of the push-up, your arms are extended. The first thing you want to do is slightly unlock your elbows and then try to pull your hands together with as much force as possible. So you're trying to pull your hands together. Of course, they won't move 
your hands won't move at all, but you're going to get an intense, super intense contraction of your pecs when you do that. So you hold that intense isometric contraction. You're trying to pull your hands together for five seconds, and then you immediately follow it with five reps. And then you rest for 10 seconds, and then you do it again, but this time you try to pull your hands together as hard as possible for four seconds, followed by four reps. Then you go all the way down until one second and one rep. Now, that's just one example of many that I give in HFT2. It depends on the muscle group. Sometimes I'll use higher reps, longer holds. Sometimes I'll use uh, lower reps, shorter holds. But that's one of the, the key principles in this is combining the muscle fiber recruitment effect of isometric contractions with your normal full range of motion reps. And that combination, when you're doing bodyweight exercises that normally wouldn't tax or recruit those largest muscle fibers will then recruit them. So isometric contractions are very, very powerful if done right, but they've kind of gotten a bad rap because people are like, oh yeah, I tried isometrics and it really didn't do anything for me. It's because isometrics have to be combined with full range of motion reps to get the full effect. Very interesting. And I got a friend of mine I should introduce you to. His name's Brad Thorpe and he's patented this isometric training device and he's he's all about isometrics and I've learned a lot from him and I use these isometric contractions I have some pretty beat up knees and that have really that I've tried so many corrective exercise strategies Chad and so many different exercises and these really put me on the path to where like I not only don't feel the pain like I used to, but I feel strong in my legs as well. They're so underutilized and underappreciated. But like you said, you got to know how to use them. I was really curious because you have these three different ways that you use isometrics. You talk about how you only squeeze for 10 seconds, but there's other guys recommending, even the program that I'm on with uh, for Coach Summers from Gymnastic Bodies, I'm doing holds up to one minute sometimes. Can you talk about why you only keep it to that 10? I kind of know the answer and I know it goes back to the Heinemann size principle and the ATPPC, but can you just briefly describe why you do what you do with isometrics versus, you know, some of the other people out there who also utilize isometric training? Like I said before, it depends on, first of all, the goal. There's certainly times to hold uh, isometric contraction longer than 10 seconds. It depends on the muscle group as well. But generally speaking, 10 seconds, this is what we know. The largest, strongest muscle fibers can only sustain their activity for 10 seconds or less. So if you're doing a maximum tension isometric squeeze, we know that after 10 seconds, your force is going to drop and the force drops because your largest, strongest muscle fibers have fatigued because they have the lowest endurance capabilities. Just think of it as a football team. You know, your biggest, strongest guys, your 360-pound linemen, Obviously, they don't have nearly as much endurance as the smaller, weaker, for lack of a better term, wide receiver. And that's how your muscle fibers are. So it just goes back to what's your goal. If your goal is to stimulate those largest muscle fibers and stimulate them again in subsequent sets, then you need to limit the set, the squeeze to 10 seconds or less. Because what happens is if you're going, if you do like a 20 or 30 second squeeze, then you start fatiguing out the smaller, let's say the medium-sized muscle fibers. 
The problem with fatiguing the medium-sized muscle fibers is that the medium-sized muscle fibers or motor units is the necessary pathway to get to the largest ones. And this is what Henneman's size principle talks about. You can't get to the largest ones unless you're going through the medium ones. And if the medium ones are fatigued, then you can't get to the largest ones. That's why if you do a triple drop set or something like that where you really burn out a muscle group, for, for those of you who don't know, it's like imagine a dumbbell bench press. You do eight reps with a heavy load and then immediately you grab lighter dumbbells and do you know another eight reps and lighter dumbbells and you do you know reps to failure. That really fatigues those medium-sized motor units. And that's why then if you went even three or five minutes later and tried to do a max one rep max bench press, you wouldn't be nearly as strong because you fatigued out those medium-sized muscle fibers that are required to be recruited before the larger ones are. A good analogy is if you live in a 10-story apartment building and your apartment's on the 10th floor and they close out the 5th and 6th floor, it's blocked off for some reason, and you have to take the stairs, you can't get to the 10th floor because you have to get through the 5th and 6th floor, but they're blocked. And that's what happens with doing these high rep or long sets to failure is they set up kind of a barrier for you reaching the larger ones. So that's why I have you keep the sets to 10 seconds or less. But there are certainly times, quadriceps, deltoids would be one of them, where it's beneficial to hold longer than 10 seconds. Now, if you're talking about like body weight stabilization holds, like planks, side planks, and the like, then definitely you want to hold longer than 10 seconds because that's not about just building size and strength. That's about building endurance stability. And my buddy Stu McGill has done you know, some of the best research on that. So like a side plank, you know, you want to be able to hold that for 90 seconds. Holding it for 10 seconds wouldn't make any sense because it's not about muscle growth and getting strength. So it depends on what your goal is. It depends on what the exercise is, what the goal is. And maybe some people, they want endurance in their muscle fibers and they don't just want to just overloading the largest you know, motor units. So it really depends on the goal. But that's why I recommend 10 seconds because any longer than that, they start dropping out. And then if you go beyond 10 seconds, it's going to be much harder to recruit those largest muscle fibers again in subsequent sets. Yeah, very, very interesting, Chad. And I hope if you're listening to this, you're starting to make those finer distinctions behind what one expert says and another expert says. And and Chad, your goal here with this HFT2 program is to stimulate strength and muscle, right? To build strength, to build muscle. So you say something really cool in when you're, you're talking about the isometric techniques. You call them iso squeezes because you want people really squeezing the hell out of using that push-up example, really trying to bring the floor together. Even though the floor is not going to move, your muscles are contracting as hard as possible to try to make that happen. And then you go back and do that push-up that's only working with maybe 50% of your body or so. And that's how you get this awesome combination of strength and muscle from really not a great exercise, right? The push-up's just okay. Like you mentioned, it's just a, a small percentage of your body. And if you're a pretty strong guy, it's going to be pretty light. No, really cool, man. I'm, I'm learning a lot. And I know everyone listening is getting a masterclass in smarter training. 
you also have a part where you you talk about the rules. And man, one of the reasons why I love the whole isometric thing and love what you're doing with this is because it gets people more into stimulating muscle than just counting reps. Because one of the biggest issues I see out there and, and with some of my clients, they're like, okay, no, I just did 20 push-ups. It's like, no, you hardly stimulated your muscle at all. You popped up, dropped down, and okay, fine. If you're in a push-up competition, that's great. You know, Really get as many as you can if you're trying to make some minimum requirement for being a police officer of the military or whatever. But if we're talking about to get bigger and stronger, you really need to stimulate the muscle. And, and you talk about that. And your rule number one is always use perfect form. Can you talk about why it's so important? The bottom line is if you're not doing the exercise correctly, it doesn't matter what load, what technique you're using. You're just not going to get the best results because when your form isn't perfect, then you're using other muscle groups or other joints to kind of make the exercise easier. So form and in HFT2, that's why I have video tutorials of all these exercises because I want to be sure that people are doing the exercises correctly. A perfect example is going back to standing biceps curl is, you know, swinging your body, swinging your whole body because the barbell's too heavy or the dumbbells are too heavy. So in essence, you're not making your biceps work any harder, you're just now recruiting muscles in your posterior chain to lift this load that's actually too heavy for you. And that just sets you up for injury or creates excessive fatigue and all that. So with HFT2 and with high-frequency training in general, what I always talk about is you have to get maximum stimulation to the muscle and minimum stimulation to the joints. And that's where correct form really comes in because when form is crappy, then the joints are taking a beating. And, you know, being this doctor of physical therapy program, it's really kind of <laughs> disheartening to learn all these things like about uh, cartilage, for instance. It's like, oh, yeah, it's cool to squat heavy twice a day like the Bulgarians. But the problem is, is once you lose your cartilage in your knees, you're screwed. Yeah. So you're not going to get it back. We don't have the technology now. Maybe in 50 years, they'll take a needle and shoot it in our knees and they can grow new cartilage. But it's like, you have to be smart with your training. It's really easy. Ted, I'm sure you're the same as, as I was when you're 21, 25 years old. You think you're invincible. You're going to live forever and train is super heavy all the time. But then when you get older, you start to be smarter, usually by necessity. And perfect form is really a key especially in these body weight exercises because it's, it's very easy to cheat and use other muscle groups that aren't important for the task and just not you know get maximum stimulation. So the bottom line with your question is why is it important to use perfect form? One, to protect your joints, to avoid against injury, and two, to get maximum stimulation to the muscle that you're trying to build. Yeah. And if you don't have that, then you're just going into the gym and you know doing one of those prep tests or, or for some sort of like, you know, military thing or fire department test. Yeah. So, so important, man. And absolutely. I found out the hard way, just like a lot of other knuckleheaded meatheads like myself, you know, I started getting into this. Definitely. I was never a very, very strong guy because I focused more on the martial arts, the Brazilian jiu-jitsu competitions. But when I was in the gym, yeah, it was all about lifting weight. And it's like, nah, yeah. My knees ache now, but I can handle the pain. And then it starts to get more chronic. 
<laughs> you're oh, like, all yeah. right, something's, something's got to change. And, and so if you're a person who is having that issue, then I really encourage you to go check out Chad's HFT program because like he just mentioned, there's video tutorials. It's not just some book, which actually the book is very well written. I've read the entire thing. And he has video tutorials throughout. Another thing you're really heavy on is the mobility. And I know we're coming up on an hour right now, but can you uh, just briefly describe why mobility is so important for those guys who haven't figured out yet that you know not being able to lift your arms over your head is probably not going to lead to a long, healthy, strong, muscular life. It goes back to the last question you asked me about perfect form, why it's so essential. A barbell squat, for instance, is an exercise that requires very high levels of mobility in the ankle, the hips, in the T-spine. And that's why a lot of strength coaches have gotten away from it because we just kind of found better ways to get the job done, whether using a goblet squat or a deadlift instead or whatever. But a lot of people don't have the mobility to do exercises correctly. And if you don't have the mobility then you're setting yourself up for an injury. And if you're young and you don't even care about that, you're not getting maximum stimulation to the muscles because when you use poor form, then other muscle groups and joints are working. You're using connective tissue. You're hanging your technique on these connective tissues and things like that. You're just not getting as much muscle fiber recruitment. So what I really focused on was areas that most guys have insufficient mobility in. So the shoulder the T-spine, the hips. For instance, if you're doing a single leg squat or a goblet squat or whatever, you don't have sufficient mobility in your hips, then you're not going to be able to do it correctly and then your results are going to suffer. Or if you don't have adequate T-spine extension, you're not going to be able to do overhead press correctly or a handstand push-up correctly. So we've all seen guys who do handstand push-ups, maybe out on the beach or at the gym or whatever, who are had this super huge arch in their lower back, right? Yeah, looks terrible. It's because they have insufficient T-spine mobility. Their thoracic spine, that region between your mid-back and the base of your neck, needs to be able to extend backwards in order to get your arms straight overhead. And for lots of, of reasons, you know, we've lost that ability because of poor posture and sitting and computers and iPhones and all this stuff. Then you can't lift your arms straight overhead. And then you have to compensate. And when you can't lift your arms straight overhead and you can't lock out your elbows, then you have to use less load or you can't do as many reps or you cannot generate as much tension with your isometric contraction. And then all these things then impede your gains. So the mobility work is just super important. It's important for recovery, but it's important for being able to do the exercises correctly so you can get the best results from them. Yeah. Well said, man. And, you know, just wanted to drive that point home. I talked about it the other day because Brad Schoenfeld said he put something up that research suggests you need to work through a full range of motion to stimulate the muscle to get bigger and to get the best results. And for all of you guys out there who do half squats because your hamstrings are too tight or your your hips or your ankles or whatever it is and and you know you want to press over your head but your shoulders are messed up you got to put some mobility work back in your program and I'll tell you the ones that you showed here I have not seen the the sphinx variation that you showed as well as the way you showed the bear very cool Chad I feel like we could talk for hours man I feel like we're just getting <laughs> warmed up but what we'll have to do we'll have 
have to have you come back on and, and dive into this stuff even more. But for right now, why don't you tell the listeners where to find your new book? And also, uh, you have something special for the Legendary Life listeners, don't you? I do. I do. If they go this weekend to the website, it's HFT Muscle. So HFTMuscle.com, high frequency training muscle. So HFTMuscle.com. They can get my HFT2 training system, which is all the instructional videos, 16-week full body training plans, targeted programs for each body part. So maybe people like their current program, but they just want to build up their biceps and deltoids or whatever. They can just implement that in their current program. At checkout, there's a little coupon box. And in that coupon box, if you put in SAVE10, so SAVE, S-A-V-E 10, then you'll get 10% off the system. Awesome. Yeah, thanks so much for that. So HFTMuscle.com. And then when you check out, you put in SAVE10. No, really appreciate that, Chad. And I'll have that up on the show notes and where the guys can find you. Is there anywhere else that you'd like them to go? Well, my website, chadwaterberry.com. I haven't been doing as many blog posts recently as I'd like to, just because I'm so buried in school and everything else. But there's tons, if you go in the archives, tons of articles in there. And you'll see me in various places. I'm in the current muscle and fitness issue. I think the current one is still out, the one with Michael Strahan on the cover. So I actually talk about the new muscle and fitness. Uh, there's a six-page article on HFT training in there. And uh, I was in Men's Health last month. But yeah, you'll see me at various places. But the main thing is go to hftmuscle.com, get that system, get it for 10% off. And then uh, yeah, get on my newsletter list at chadwaterberry.com. And you can just find out all my, uh, my latest information. Awesome. Well, Chad, thank you so much for being on the Legendary Life Show today. Really appreciate it, man. And I can't wait to have you back. I feel like I said before, we're just getting warmed up and there's so many things that we could talk about. Deeper dive into training, how to make it more effective. And I learned a ton today. So thank you so much. Oh, it's my pleasure, Ted. I look forward to coming back. 